listening to Detroit Today on 101.9 WDET. I'm Jake Neer, in for Stephen Henderson today. The second impeachment trial of Donald Trump is underway in the U.S. Senate. It's the first time in history that a president has faced two different impeachment trials and the first time ever that a former president has faced a trial. That last point is something senators debated and voted on this week with Trump's legal team and supporters saying It was unconstitutional to try a president who is no longer in office. The Senate ultimately rejected that assertion, but the impeachment defense brief filed by Trump's attorneys cited a familiar name to listeners of this show. Michigan State University constitutional law professor Brian Kalt authored the seminal article on impeachment of a former president, and he's cited 15 times in the Trump defense team brief. But he says his work concludes exactly the opposite of what Trump's attorneys are trying to say. Professor Brian Colt joins me now to talk about it. Uh, Professor Colt, welcome to Detroit Today. Good morning. So I really want to talk about the moment that you learned, uh, that you found out that your work would be cited extensively in Trump's impeachment defense. What was your reaction when you heard that? Well, I wasn't surprised. I'd, I'd been cited even more in the House manager's brief because... Hmm. That, that article is really the only thing out there from before all this started. And mm. and it's really long. I, I put everything I could find on both sides in there. So I expected that there would be quite a few things in there that would be useful for the um, Trump lawyers to cite. But then when I looked at how they cited it, that was that was problematic. That's interesting that that you sort of you, you weren't surprised that you were cited. It was just the way that the, that it was cited. So in, in layman's terms. How is your work being used by Trump's legal team in this case? The the problematic parts were uh, places where I would say, um, well, if if you don't think there's jurisdiction, you you might argue X. Here's why that's wrong, and they cited me for saying X and left out the here's why it's wrong part. So hmm. what they did was sort of piggybacking on the credibility of the article, making it sound like I believed X, um, when in fact I said the opposite. I said not X. And in legal citation, there are all sorts of rules and and ways that you cite things. If you're you're citing something because it agrees with you and directly supports what you said, you cite that one way. If you're citing something because they mentioned something that you're using, you cite that a different way. They weren't doing it the way you're supposed to do it, and so, they were misleading. So, so the way that that I'm hearing this, and tell me if this is correct in in your opinion. So, I would I would maybe uh, compare that to let's say NPR does a fact check of something that Donald Trump says and states the claim that Donald Trump says. Uh, in this case, let's say the that the um, election was stolen, and then NPR c- cites all the the reasons that it was not and why that claim was false. And then someone comes around and says NPR reported that the election was stolen. Is that is that a fair comparison to what you're saying here? Yeah, you you would say Trump said the election was stolen. Here's why that's wrong, and then they cite you as saying, "quote the election was stolen," right. unquote, which technically is a quote from your article, but not what you said. That's interesting. Is there, I mean, are there are there any consequences for using and, and citing something in a way like that that really removes so much context that it is blatantly a false citation? 
Well, I, I when I was a, a law clerk for an appellate court and when I was a lawyer in practice, lawyers sometimes uh, do things like this. And what you do is you call them out mm-hmm. and the judge hears about it and you, you, you get your side of the story in and they lose some credibility from that. And that's what I did. I called them out and, and the house managers uh, called them out. Uh, seeing that called them out on my behalf. And so everyone got to hear that. And I tweeted about it and I gave some examples and I wrote a, a piece for Slate where I went through some more of the details. Um, but that's that's really it. This isn't the sort of thing that gets someone disbarred mm-hmm. uh, or anything like that. So, uh, you know, you talk about the the historical evidence that you point to in your article. What What is that historical evidence? Walk us through some of the, the more pertinent points of of that article from 2001 that, that you wrote uh, in this in this case on on either side. Well, so uh, one example is um, they said in the brief in the Federalist Papers, number 39, James Madison wrote that the president of the United States is impeachable at any time during his continuance in office. Now, normally, if, you, if you're going to use that evidence, you would just cite Madison. But instead, they cited me citing Madison. <laughs> uh, what I actually wrote was, taken out of context, Madison's statement that the president is impeachable at any time during his continuance in office would seem to rule out late impeachment. But Madison wasn't speaking of the limits of the federal impeachment power. He was speaking of its expansion. He was comparing, in other words, the uh, Constitution to some state constitutions where uh, governors couldn't be uh, impeached while in office. They could only be impeached afterwards. And so he was saying, well, the, the federal Constitution expands that. You can, you can do it at any time when he's in office. In, in other words, they added something. They weren't ruling out uh, the, the late impeachment. Mm. Uh, similar stuff with Alexander Hamilton. Um, they cited me as noting that Hamilton seemed to think that removal was a required component. And what I said was Hamilton made some proposals to the convention that would have made that clear. Uh, Those were rejected. And then later in the Federalist Papers, he said things that uh, about the Constitution is actually written that support the idea of jurisdiction over uh, former officials. So so again, they they turned it on its head. Mm. So, so overall, um, if you were to give a sort of general statement about uh, what your work seems to indicate about whether or not it's constitutional to uh, impeach an, a president who is no longer in office, what's the answer to that? Uh, I think the answer is it's not 100 percent clear. There, there is a lot of evidence. There are a lot of arguments on both sides. But when you look at all of the evidence when you take the the history, the context of, that they were writing in, you look at the text, uh, which is ambiguous, you look at the precedent, I think the weight of the evidence supports pretty strongly the conclusion that they can do this. And uh, and they have done it before. And, you know, even Ted Cruz, he just wrote something the other day uh, saying he agrees that they do have jurisdiction. Mm-hmm. Um, but he made a separate argument about why they should decline to exercise that jurisdiction here. But even Ted Cruz agrees with me in the end. (laughs) 
Um, you're listening to Detroit Today on 101.9 WDET. I'm Jake Neer. I'm in for Stephen Henderson today. I'm talking with Brian Kalt, a professor of law at Michigan State University, author of Constitutional Cliffhangers, a legal guide for presidents and their enemies. Uh, his work is cited in on both sides of the Trump impeachment trial that is happening right now in the Senate. And uh, we'd love to hear from you, the listener here. Are you paying attention to the impeachment of Donald Trump? Are you ready to move on and focus on the Biden administration? Uh, Do you believe that the outcome of this impeachment trial will have any real impact on the legacy of the Trump presidency or even have tangible consequences? Uh, and, And do you think it could set in a really important precedent moving forward? Of course, the Number on the lines is 313-577-1019. Again, that's 313-577-1019. You can also leave uh, comments and questions on Twitter. Just use the hashtag Detroit Today. Um, And Brian, I want to ask, you know, in terms of uh, the opening statements we heard this week. Uh, we're, we're already hearing quite a bit from the uh, the, the House managers uh, now, but uh, you know the first of Trump's attorneys to make an opening statement, Bruce Castor, uh, he got a lot of flack for his presentation. Uh, you could say, uh, I'm curious, what did what did you make of his statements uh, this week? It, it seemed like they were kind of all over the place to a layman. But what were your thoughts? Yeah, they were kind of all over the place <clears throat> to me too. I I was I kept waiting for him to start talking about jurisdiction, and an hour plus went by, and and he didn't. Um, mm. I, I'm not sure what he was doing there. And you saw at the end, the House managers had some extra time, and they didn't feel like that would be the best thing for them to do to keep everyone there, so they just didn't use all their time. I think. He didn't have anything to say. He he didn't need to say anything really. Um, Bruce Schoen, the other lawyer, uh, made the jurisdictional arguments. He could have just left it to him and 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 not confused everyone for an hour or so. Uh, it, it didn't seem to matter to any senators other than Senator Cassidy. I think everyone had already made up their minds how they were going to vote, but it was very odd to listen to that. Yeah. And and I want to get to more uh, along those lines in a little bit here. But first, uh, again, the number on the lines is 313-577-1019. Let's go to Greg in Midtown. Uh, Greg, welcome to Detroit Today. Uh, good morning. Thank you so much. Yeah, good morning. What would you like to say today? Well, um, the Internet has changed everything. Um, there's so much more access to information. Um, I want to go back to the first impeachment where Adam Schiff begged uh, the Senate to remove Donald Trump from office before something really bad happened. Mm. What happened just after that? 470,000 people, 470,000 deaths, deaths later. Okay. Yeah. And then, uh, as kids, you know, we were told to wipe our feet before we came in the house. <laughs> because if you didn't, you're going to track it through the House. Uh, Ronald Reagan's uh, Fairness in Media Act, uh, something to that effect, has led to a lot of uh, yellow journalism, which means anybody can say anything, which is not the American way. There has to be uh, not only a modicum of truth, but it has to ring true. And uh, this president Although he's very well liked, you know, he is a pariah. His own mother said 
If he ever went into politics, it would be a disaster. Hmm. That's his mom. So uh, if they don't, you know, the the possibility of him coming back, what could he do after a second impeachment when the first one, they would not remove him? There would maybe be at least 400,000 people still alive. Yeah. What yeah. do you think? Well, Greg, I, I really appreciate that point, and I think that again, it gets it gets back to the very serious uh, aspect of all this, which is uh, about consequences for actions in office, especially the highest office here. And you know, I I, I think that it's interesting the the point that Greg makes, uh, Brian, that um, you know we we've already gone through an impeachment of this president, where what 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 the uh, House managers in that case were saying was about setting a precedent. And now we've got another one uh, that, you know, a lot is being said along those lines as well. And what this means for consequences for for presidents and their actions in office, um, you know, as someone who's looked at, at uh, impeachment in the past, you know, what do you think it would say if uh, if if we had two impeachments of the same president and, and no tangible consequences uh, as a result of either of them? I think it's a real issue. Um, it it was an issue in the Clinton impeachment too that that the House impeached, and they were pretty sure that they weren't going to get a conviction. And in the first forty one presidencies, we had two impeachments, and they were both very serious. <clears throat> Andrew Johnson was almost convicted. Nixon um, wasn't impeached; he resigned before uh, he could be impeached because he was going to lose. Um, since then, we've had four presidents, three impeachments, none of them looking much like there's going to be a conviction. So I think what's happened is with the polarization of the parties, it's gotten a lot easier to get a majority in the House willing to impeach. At the same exact time, it's gotten harder to get that two-thirds in the Senate that you need because you'd need substantial numbers of the president's own party to get to two-thirds. So we have these futile impeachments and um, I, I think it's it's problematic. Like you said, there are no consequences. If you're impeached and quitted, um, that has no legal effect. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and, and in the case of the first impeachment, it emboldened President Trump. So I, I think that the House needs to think more creatively, both parties do, about other ways. If they, if they don't have the votes, if they don't have two-thirds in the Senate, other ways that they can bring to light what the president has done um, and uh, make it be known what they think about it and and then ultimately let the voters decide for themselves. Hmm. And, and we might see that here. If, if there's not a conviction, they might say, well, maybe we can have a, a censure resolution hmm. or something, a, a statement where we're not talking about all these technical issues like, well, it's impeachment, but he's already gone. Is disqualification really appropriate? You can just have an up and up or down vote on do you think what he did was problematic and should be condemned? Hmm. And I think more Republicans would sign on to that than to vote for conviction in the impeachment. And the ones that don't, they'll be making a clear statement. They they won't be saying, oh, this is about jurisdiction. They'll be saying, I'm okay with this. And so the voters would know where people stand. 
Yeah, I, I, think, I think that might be useful. I, I want to pick up on this point uh, after another short break here. Um, uh, you know, after the, the the break, we will talk more with Brian Kalt, professor of law with Michigan State University, author of Constitutional Cliffhangers, a legal guide for presidents and their enemies. And we want to get to more of your calls. Karen in Macomb, you'll be up next after the break. Your city. Your town. Your voice. On 1019 WDET. Detroit's NPR station. You're listening to Detroit Today on 1019 WDET. I'm Jake Neer, in for Stephen Henderson. I'm talking with Brian Kalt, who is a professor of law at Michigan State University, the author of Constitutional Cliffhangers, a legal guide for presidents and their enemies. We are talking about President Trump, now former President Trump's second impeachment trial underway now in the U.S. Senate and a lot of the constitutional arguments uh, that are surrounding that. Uh, we will get to more of your calls in just a bit. Again, the number on the lines is 313-577-1019. Again, that's 313-577-1019. How are you feeling about this second impeachment trial? Uh, what do you think the possible outcomes or the probable outcomes will be here? Um, and what happens if there are no consequences in this in this situation? What do you think uh, that means? What does that mean going forward for presidents and for our democracy in the future? Um, Professor Kalt, I I did want to pick up on what we were uh, talking about there before the break, um, uh, before we get to more calls. The thing that I keep thinking of, and especially as I was watching Bruce Castor's, um, you know, opening statements for the Trump uh, defense, you know, I I tweeted this out. I I feel like they could have gone up there and just, you know, uh, talk gibberish for 20 minutes or, or just read the, you know, saying the ABCs for 20 minutes and the the political calculus wouldn't change. It wouldn't make much of a difference for Republicans. I, I do think that there is an opportunity for the impeachment managers and for Democrats here to really lay out a compelling case, uh, at least at the very least, uh, for the public's perception of all this uh, and, and really show what happened. But for Trump's legal defense and for Republicans, it, like you mentioned earlier in the conversation, doesn't seem like much is changing here. Much is likely to change here, that the most likely outcome is that he'll be acquitted. Um, and to me, what that the question that begs is, is impeachment itself on trial here? Is, is the entire idea of, you know, fair consequences for actions in office, um, is, is the whole idea that the Constitution sets up for those consequences damaged um, based on what happens here? I don't want to get too far ahead of things. It it is possible that the evidence that comes out might persuade enough Republican senators. Um, You know, that's that's why they have the trial. But Mm. I might be a little too cynical here. Who knows? (laughs) Well, I I, I think I'm not holding my breath that there will be 67 senators voting to convict. But I I don't think that um, giving up at this point on that is something that the Democrats should do. Mm. Uh, they should make their case and and Trump's lawyers will make their case. And I, I assume it'll be more uh, coherent once they're talking about facts instead of law, it'll be easier for them to make their case. Um, but I, I think it's 
like you said, uh, impeachment is on trial. You need two thirds in the Senate. It's hard to get two thirds in the Senate. Um, Andrew Johnson was the only president ever to face a two thirds majority of the other party in the Senate. And, And he almost got convicted, but even he didn't get convicted. Nixon's the only one who did something that enough members of his own party had a problem with that that he lost. Um, and even even then, it was only when the tapes came out and it was clear that he was lying that, that there were enough votes on the Republican side against him. So it's it's almost it, you, I think you have to think about more broadly than just impeachment about what drives that, what drives that, not just polarization of our two-party system, but different views of reality. It's a, a two-reality system at, at some mm. extent. Um, so if if you listen to, uh, well, I during the breaks of the trial, I uh, would see what they were saying on CNN. What are they saying on Fox News? Um, Fox News wasn't even talking about the trial. They were talking about Mark Cuban and uh, the Dallas Mavericks national mm. anthem uh, issue. Um, when they do talk about it, they're talking about uh, Antifa and mm. um, sort of a, a what about the other side argument. And if you, if you look at it from that perspective and, and the Republican senators fear uh, primary challengers uh, who subscribe to that version of, of things, um, it's, it's, hard, it's hard to see. It's hard to see what would be enough to break through that? What would someone have to do that everyone would agree in, in, in enough numbers on the narrative that we could get a bipartisan consensus to do something about it? It's it's hard to imagine what would cross that bar, uh, clear that bar now that we have this two reality system. And, and, and when you have that, when you can't count on impeachment to work, that's a very important fundamental check and balance in the system. And w- without that, things things could fall apart. It's an issue. And, and I guess for me, the, the question um, soon becomes less about what does a person have to do? The, and then it becomes what what exists in our constitutional system? What what could possibly exist in our constitutional system? That's maybe an alternative uh, to to impeachment. You mentioned censure earlier, which uh, does exist. And, and, uh, you know, although um, it does, it is obviously less of a a tangible consequence in terms of, um, you know, barring someone from running for president again or removal from office, obviously, uh, kind of a a wide gap between uh, what it actually means for the president or other public officials. But um, are there other avenues here um, that could be considered or, you know, is there is there a fix for this if impeachment just becomes not, um, you know, not, not adequate to respond to these things? The last line of defense that the Constitution has is also the first one, sort of the foundation of the whole system, which is elections. If if the voters um, are okay with something, then nothing's going to happen. Mm-hmm. But the voters can vote in favor of a party that pursued an impeachment, even if it failed, they can vote against the party that uh, stopped a conviction from happening. If enough voters feel that strongly about it, then that'll send a message too. Um, I, I don't think that that has been an issue before. When Clinton was impeached, uh, the Republicans paid a price for that at the polls. Mm-hmm. Uh, they lost seats in the House in the midterms. I, I don't know that the impeachment. Uh, the first impeachment of Trump really mattered in in the election. So I I don't know. I don't know how much this impeachment will register 
in in the 2022 elections, but that is what the Constitution says is sort of the ultimate way of of dealing with this. The reason that the House and Senate are in charge of impeachments and not, um, say, the Supreme Court is that they are politicians who are accountable to uh, the voters. Mm -hmm. And so that's that's how it's supposed to work. There is also one other mechanism. Censure is not in the Constitution. It, it doesn't have any effect. That's why it's not unconstitutional. Sure. Uh, but there is the 14th Amendment, Section 3 option. That uh, has been discussed. Um, people who are engaged in rebellion or insurrection, and they, they are disqualified from office. There's there's a lot of complication to using that. I just don't see that as, as a realistic option in this case. But sure. you know, we might hear more about that. Yeah. I want to get to a call before we have to end here, but uh, I want to go to Karen in Macomb. Karen, uh, welcome to Detroit Today. Hi. Good morning. Thanks for taking my call. Um, this has just been stunning these last two days um, with yet trial. Um, I apologize. My phone's acting up, so uh, I might lose the call. <laughs> it's but okay. Quickly, just, I wanted yeah. to say that all of the state bars, all of the state's attorney grievance commissions need to do something about, you know, these wretched legislators who are attorneys that are turning a blind eye and a deaf ear to what Trump has done. I mm. mean, this is absolutely horrific that we watched all this unfold on January 6th, and now everyone has to relive this all over again. Those senators, those representatives, you know, they all took an oath when they were sworn in to practice law that they promised to uphold and defend the Constitution. Yeah, uh, Karen, I really appreciate the comment today, and uh, thank you for calling in. Uh, Brian Kalt, um, Michigan State University professor of law. I'll give you. We've only got about thirty seconds here, but I wanted to give you the last word on um, you know where where we're at right now on all this. It's it's politics, um, mm-hmm. and just to go back to what I said uh, the last um, time, it's up to the voters and. There are plenty of voters who support Donald Trump, who believe his side of the story. Um, If there are even more who don't, then that'll be the consequence. These politicians um, who are supporting Trump aren't going to be disbarred or disciplined by their bars if they're lawyers for it, but they might be voted out of office. And if, if they're not, then we'll have to just keep going on like we've been going. But if they are voted out, if the Democrats gain from this, then maybe that'll make the difference. It's really, like I said, the last line of defense. Mm. Ryan Cald is a professor of law at Michigan State University, author of the book Constitutional Cliffhangers, a legal guide for presidents and their enemies. Brian, thank you so much for joining us here on Detroit Today. Thanks for having me. That's all for today. Tune in tomorrow. Stephen Henderson will be back. He's going to kick off an exciting series of conversations with writers from The Atlantic about their new inheritance project. It explores American history, black life, and resilience of memory. This is WDET, Detroit's NPR station, your connection to news, music, and conversation. I'm Jake Neer. Thanks so much for joining us.